Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. As you may have heard somewhere, I don't know where, a time or two, my new book, Medgar and Murley, The Love Story That Awakened America, is coming out in just two weeks. And that means I, of course, am hitting the road. I will be in Evers' hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, at the Civil Rights Museum on Tuesday, February 13th at 6 p.m. On February 15th, I'll be at Pomona College in Claremont, California at 7 p.m. And on February 26th, I'll be at Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C. at 7 p.m. Be sure to go to msnbc.com slash Medgar and Murley to get your tickets and the full tour schedule. If you're a Barnes and Noble member, be sure to go to barnesandnoble.com and pre-order your copy between now and January 26th to get a cute 25% off. We love a discount. Tonight on The Readout. This case is costing already almost a million dollars. I'm going to need your support, folks, for the appeal, defendpeter.com. Yet another Trump associate is heading to prison, broke, humiliated, and begging for money. Also, the Republican frontrunner himself was on the witness stand today for all of three minutes as the defense rests in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, plus the horrifying post-Roe consequences, nearly 65,000 pregnancies from rape in the 14 states with abortion bans. But we begin tonight in New York City, where Donald Trump, fresh off his New Hampshire primary victory, making him the all but certain Republican presidential nominee, addressed a much smaller crowd today, a nine-member federal jury in the second civil defamation trial brought by writer E. Jean Carroll. A separate jury last year found Trump liable for both sexually abusing Carroll in the late 1990s and defaming her in recent years. Yeah, let's just take a moment to remember that. The presumptive Republican presidential nominee is someone who has been found liable for sexual abuse. He was MIA during that first trial, but this time Trump was clamoring to take the witness stand, which lasted all of three minutes because there was not much Trump could say at this point. That's because the judge told Trump there were no do-overs. And because, the prior jur- because of the prior jury's verdict, which was unanimous, Trump entered this courtroom still liable. The only question this jury has to decide is how much money Trump will have to pay Carroll for the defamatory statements he made while president and in his continuing attacks. To be honest, that's probably to Trump's benefit, because any time he has testified or sat for a deposition and said anything other than, I plead the fifth, he just makes his lawyer's jobs that much harder. The jury today was provided with some of his deposition from the first defamation case in which Trump publicly claimed he could have never done anything to Carol because she was supposedly not his type. And he said this. I don't even know who the woman. Let's see. I don't know who. It's Marla. You say Marla's in this photo? That's Marla. Yeah, that's that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. Here. Oh, that, the oh, person okay. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. Hmm. I'm, 
I'm, I'm sure that was just an honest mistake. And those attacks on Carol that I mentioned, well, they have continued to this very day on the campaign trail and feverishly on social media. Just last night, in a span of 20 minutes, Trump posted more than three dozen times about Carol, including some of the same defamatory statements that brought him to court in the first place. Again, I have to bring up that this is the presumptive Republican presidential nominee who literally posted every 30 seconds attacking an 80-year-old woman who he was found liable for sexually abusing. This is how he is spending his time. And you'd think Trump would learn a thing or two from seeing what happened to his former lawyer Rudy Giuliani's performance in his defamation trial last year, brought by the two Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Giuliani also showed disdain for the plaintiffs, repeating the same defamatory statements outside the courtroom while the trial was underway. In that case, a jury awarded the mother and daughter duo nearly $150 million in damages. As for Trump... He will be back in the courtroom tomorrow morning for the closing arguments, and the jury could start its deliberations by lunchtime. And if this jury works as fast as the last one, which returned its verdict in just under three hours, we could very well know the results before the day is over. Joining me now is MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin, who was in the courtroom today. Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor and professor at Georgetown School of Law. And David K. Johnson, David K. Johnston, author of The Big Cheat, and the founder of DCReport.org. Thank you all for being here. Lisa, let me go to you first. Why was that testimony only three minutes? Testimony was only three minutes, Joy, because Judge Kaplan had already made some rulings that really circumscribed what Donald Trump could permissibly testify to. And chiefly, he said that she, he couldn't testify that the defamation wasn't, in fact, defamatory. He couldn't testify that the sexual assault didn't happen. And he also couldn't testify to a number of other things that he wanted to testify to, including, for example, her sexual history or proclivities. And so that really limited Donald Trump in terms of what he could permissibly say. Notwithstanding that, Judge Kaplan wasn't satisfied that his instructions would be enough. He subjected Alina Haba to what we call a proffer, where he asked her to explain, what questions do you intend to ask your client today? And how do you expect that your client is going to answer that? And one of the things I thought was most interesting about that was Judge Kaplan wanted to know, have you personally conveyed to your client the consequences of defying my orders? And do you understand from your client that he's going to answer the way that I have laid out to you is the acceptable path? Alina was clear that she had given those instructions personally to former President Trump. What she was less clear about and, in fact, evasive about was whether Trump had, in turn, promised her that he would stick to the script, so to speak. And I think that's really telling because Alina Haba herself knows full well that her client can't be controlled. And she was effectively signaling to Judge Kaplan today, Your Honor, I know I can't control my client. That's why you and I have to go through this exercise right now. It is it is really stunning, uh, Paul. Just, I'm just going to put up just a few of the texts this week. ABC, I get even, um, you know, but this is against Nikki Haley. Uh, you know, he's, I'm sorry, these are wrong ones. These are Nikki Haley. Never mind. He, basically, he attacked this woman every 30 seconds on his fake social media, his pretend Twitter. He just keeps attacking her and attacking her and attacking her. That's not these attacks. We won't put them up. Um, in the midst of a defamation trial, when Rudy Giuliani did that, he ended up being lighter in the, in the wallet by $150 million. That's right. So it was three minutes of testimony. It was three minutes of an epic fail. Not only has Trump defamed this woman outside of the courtroom, he defamed her in answering the first question. The first question was, do you stand by your testimony in the deposition? He said, yes, 
that was a false accusation. Once again, he's lying about this woman who he sexually assaulted. Juries love when the defendant takes the stand. It's a chance for them to size him up. So how did Trump come across? He was not remorseful. He was defiant. He was disrespectful of the judge. After the three minutes, the judge basically told him to sit down and shut up. Will the jury remember that when they decide how much money Trump has to pay, Ms. Carroll? I believe they will. You mentioned uh, Shea Ross, uh, Ruby Freeman, their defamation case against Rudy Giuliani. They were asking for a few million dollars. A lot of people thought that was too much. The jury came back with almost $150 million. And just to explain, I mean, the, the punitive damages, right, if they're around like $10 million, because the first time she got like $5 million, sure. the, first, uh, the first defamation case uh, that uh, E. Jean Carroll got. And then on top of that, the jury can say, here is, the, is the, the punitive charges, but here is for her pain and suffering. Exactly. So the punitive damages are about what will it take to make this man never lie about another person who's a victim of sexual assault, especially someone that he himself has sexually assaulted. And if we want to think about the $5 million verdict, that was about uh, 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 comments that Trump made when he was not president. This damages award will be about what Trump said when he was president of the United States. In other words, when he had the biggest megaphone in the world, and he used that megaphone to lie about a woman who he himself sexually assaulted. Assaulted. Uh, David K. Johnson, it's because he has no self-control. I just want to play the infamous Access Hollywood tape and then the way that he responded to that tape in the first trial about whether or not he sexually assaulted E. Jean Carroll. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the <laughs> I can do anything. That's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the Well, that's what, it's, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. The mind reels, David. Well, I think Donald actually has a strategy here with his doubling, tripling, quintupling down in his attacks on E. Jean Carroll. I think he's hoping the jury awards far more than $10 million because then he can go out and say, see, it's further evidence. The system is against you. He can say it's a New York jury, which, of course, is code for they're not Christian and they're not white. And that will appeal to his base, but it won't broaden his support, which is what he needs. But Donald here doesn't expect to ever pay this, just as he doesn't believe he'll ever go to jail. Doesn't mean that in his jumbled mind, he's also not terrified. He is. But I think his goal here is get an enormous award from this jury so that he can use it to stir up his base. Lisa, is that, I mean, you're nodding. Is that what it appeared as you just watched the antics of not just him, but his lawyers, that it's designed to provoke this judge and this jury to make a giant award? 
Yes and no. Joy, I think they know that a massive award is coming. I don't think they are purposely trying to provoke the judge. What I'm nodding in response to is I share David's belief that they are deeply scared about this verdict. The question is why, and it's about how much cash Donald Trump has. Today, in addition to excerpts from his testimony previously in this case, they also played excerpts from the deposition he gave in the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case. And in that deposition from April of last year, Donald Trump goes on and on about his brand value, about the value of his properties, mm. about his portfolio, and at one point says, I have over $400 million in cash. Well, let's work backwards. We know that the attorney general has asked for more than $370 million in disgorgement in that yeah. civil fraud case. I believe here that we could be looking at a high eight-figure or even in excess of $100 million in a total verdict. That is, if you look at the compensatory damages for the damage to her reputation, as well as the pain and suffering, which is a part of compensation to E. Jean Carroll for her injuries, and then you think about the punitives, which is what is it going to take to make him shut up and stop? I do believe that this jury could award somewhere in the high eight figures to over $100 million. And of course, those two numbers together, those are more than the $400 million in cash that Donald <laughs> Trump famously bragged that he had. If he has to liquidate things to be able to pay damages in both cases, that's a situation that leaves him and his aides fearful, even though they are pretending they are not. Well, we know that he uh, engaged in, let's just say, hyperbole about his wealth, David K. Johnson. Does he have the money to pay a six-figure six award? Well, Donald's finances have always been a lot of smoke and mirrors. And while he testified he had over $400 million cash, I don't think you can go to the bank with that. And Donald further will believe in his own mind that I can stall and delay forever uh, in paying this award. I'll come up with one way or another to do it. That's what the notorious Roy Cohn taught him, you know, attack law enforcement or anyone who comes after you, never admit a mistake and delay, 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 delay. Is there a way that the court can make him pay? Um, yes, there is. And yes, Judge Kaplan will. So Donald Trump's got these two big things going on in his public life. He's got uh, he's campaigning for president and he's also got four criminal prosecutions and all of this civil litigation. We think of those as different things. Donald Trump thinks of them as the same. So he turns mm -hmm. his trials into campaign rallies. But guess what? At the end of the day, it's the judge who says this is a court of law. Judge Kaplan himself, he runs a tight ship. One yeah. example, uh, Trump's spokesman, his cell phone went off in court today in the courtroom. The judge kicked him out of the courtroom. Yeah. If there's a way to make him pay, however, yeah. millions, Judge Kaplan will find I, I will One parenthetical, Ron DeSantis, who uh, built Trump onesies with his babies uh, because he loved Trump so much and then pretended to run against him. He's now saying he'll veto a bill to have Florida pay his legal bills. The plot thickens. Lisa Rubin, thank you. And Paul and David are sticking around. Up next on The Readout, all the president's men are going to prison. Former White House advisor Peter Navarro becomes the latest Trump ally measured for an orange jumpsuit. Because when Congress asks you to come testify, you're supposed to say yes. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. 
And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. And another one, quite possibly, very likely, bites the dust. Today, another key Trump ally, former White House advisor Peter Navarro, was sentenced to four months in prison for criminal contempt of Congress, with federal prosecutors saying he thumbed his nose at the House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Navarro was convicted in September on two counts for refusing to testify and provide to provide documents to the committee. He wouldn't speak to the committee, but he had no problem appearing on television. He's a Trump guy, after all, where he joined Ari Melber right here on this very network to describe his plans to challenge the 2020 presidential election result. The remedy was for Vice President Pence's, the quarterback in the Green Bay sweep, to remand those votes back to the six battleground states. Do you realize you are describing a coup? No. Before all of this happened, Paul, Peter Navarro was just a regular economist, right? He was a business school professor, a get-rich-quick guru, a former Peace Corps member, a former Democrat. He then decides to throw his whole life away because he wouldn't testify before Congress. Please explain to the audience and anyone who might want to try this at home why you would go to jail for four months for not testifying before Congress. So first, you got to understand how buck wild. Peter Navarro's conduct was around January 6th, which is why the House wanted him to testify. He devised this bizarre plan called the Green Bay Sweep, where he and Steve Bannon would try to pressure all of these Republicans in swing states. And again, he's an economist. He don't know anything about constitutional law, but do Clearly, he doesn't know anything about (laughs) constitutional law, because the other part was to pressure Vice President Pence to tell the big lie. So he's talking about all this stuff uh, to Rolling Stone magazine, on TV. He even writes a book about it, but he won't testify to the House. He calls the House January 6th committee terrorists. He says it's a kangaroo court, and that's what gets him his big, fat conviction. He gets two counts of contempt of court. And today he was sentenced to four months in prison. You know, there is a pattern, David, of people buying Trump's BS and liberating themselves of their freedom and of their money. I I rewatched this old documentary yesterday. It's actually quite good. It's called uh, Trump. What's the deal? It was made in 1991 about the boom bust cycle, the mafia stuff, the racism and all. But the main point that came through is that he got away with lying for so long because people believed his BS. Here is a clip of it about Trump Tower and its million dollar apartments. Take a listen. What about the apartments? At one million dollars for two bedrooms, they're some of the most expensive in the city. Trump boasts they are the best. The molding, the base molding, is the cheapest. It, it, it's what housing projects get. The the kitchens, if I was in a housing project, I would have had a better built kitchen than what Donald Trump put into Trump Tower. The kitchens were... <laughs> I've, I've never seen more sloppily installed and more cheaply built 
kitchen cabinets. All of my clients, you know, ripped them out. People sued him over the apartments. I mean, the, the Trump Tower was built. This is from The New York Times. The Trump Tower was built with 58 floors. Mr. Trump later explained to The New York Times that because there was a soaring pink marble atrium and 19 commercial floors at the bottom, he could see no good reason not to list the first residential floor as the 30th floor. The pinnacle then became the 68th, the height that appears in marketing materials, online search results, and news articles to this day. He literally lied about the height of his building and the quality of his apartments in Trump Tower. Why do people believe him? Well, well, we shouldn't. And Libby Handross, who made that film, I was one of the handful of people who saw it before Donald Trump killed it with threats of litigation. So That's nobody right. saw it for 30 years, which is what Donald did all the time. I mean, I can't tell you how many times he's called me at home to yell at me that he's going to sue me, which he never has. Uh, it, it, but Peter Navarro, you know, th- there are orthodox economists, there are heterodox economists, and then there's people way out in Pluto land <laughs> like Peter Navarro and their economic theories. Uh, really strange stuff. And this just demonstrates that when Trump says, I only hire the best people, I only appoint the best people, they're only the best people in terms of, I'll go to jail for you, Donald. That's how much I think of you. It's true. I mean, the, the, the number of people who, Paul, have thrown their lives away for him is actually remarkable. And we were talking during the break about the fact that the ordinary Joes end up straight to jail. Yeah. But the rich ones like Giuliani or people like Steve Bannon can find a way to maneuver and stay away and don't seem to ever pay for their crimes. But there, it, it is a it's a non-zero number of people who seem to be willing to literally throw their lives away for this guy. It's strange. They have to make this calculation. Are they more afraid of Donald Trump or are they more afraid of going to prison? Yeah. A lot of people choose going to prison. It's bizarre. It, let me let me let's talk about the other case. This is the case uh, about whether or not he lied about his businesses. This is the one that could actually get him to be barred from doing business in New in the state of New York forever. I want to play a little bit about his what he said about his brand and how he priced his business based on it. Take a look. My most valuable asset, I didn't even include on your statement, and that's the brand. I mean, I became president because of the brand, okay? I became president. Uh, I think it's the hottest brand in the world. If I wanted to uh, show you a good statement, I would have added maybe $10 billion or something for the brand. I mean, he's right that he became president because of his brand. Other than New Yorkers who knew he was uh, BSing. The rest of the country kind of revered this guy, right, especially through the 80s. And that's why he's president. But in that case, though, is that an argument that's going to have any weight with the judge who gets to decide? Yeah, it will support the judge finding that Trump was very involved in the valuation and also that he wasn't honest. Trump's basically saying he left out stuff. Again, that's not true. But again, it shows that his 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 um, not criminal intent, because this is a civil case, sure. but, but it shows that he is not on the up and up. And what happens to him mentally? <laughs> You're not a psychiatrist, David K. Johnson, but you actually know him. If he is, in fact, even aside from the settlement that Tish Games could, you know, six figures, eight, you know, whatever, six figure settlement, if he's barred from doing business in New York ever again. Well, he was barred briefly, and then that was held off because the proceedings are still underway. He will be barred from doing business. Doing business is a privilege. A corporation, even an LLC, is a creature of state that you have the privilege of running, but you have to follow the rules. And Trump has always uh, just ignored the rules. I mean, claiming, for example, his golf course in Westchester County was worth as little as $1.3 million dollars. 
that his a nearby mansion and grounds were worth $219 million when a house in this country had never sold for $100 million. Uh, th- there's just no limit to Donald's making stuff up because that's who he is. Unfortunately, in a court of law, that doesn't fly. The, the, I guess the question a lot of people would ask is, and how in the hell has he gotten away with it for so long? That's the million dollar, maybe the two hundred and forty three million dollar question. Well, uh, I think because Donald, I, Joy, I think because Donald was not a really big developer. Uh, he wasn't that important. Nobody he thought wasn't important he made enough to, <laughs> oh, to be a rich white billionaire in the United States of America. Uh, uh, then free to crime at will and then become president and then have a coup and try to become president again. What a world. What a country. Paul Butler, David K. Johnston, thank you very much. Still ahead. Believe it or not, there are Republican lawmakers and officials who have not fully surrendered to the cult of Trump. But why are they so quiet? Now's your chance, fellas. Everybody's listening. There's an election on. Speak up. We'll be right back. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has for a long time wanted you to know he really loves Ukraine, repeatedly pushing for more and even as America first MAGA types uh, for more aid, even as America first MAGA types have opposed it. But apparently Mitch might not love Ukraine enough to push through aid so the country can survive its war with Russia if it means taking away Donald Trump's pet campaign issue, fear mongering about the border. At least that was the message from McConnell on Wednesday in a closed door meeting where he cast doubt on an emerging deal on border enforcement paired with Ukraine aid, telling senators that linking the two issues could also sink Ukraine aid altogether. First reported by Punchbowl News, quote, McConnell referred to Donald Trump as the nominee and noted the former president wants to run his 2024 campaign centered on immigration and said, we don't want to do anything to undermine him. That unsurprisingly set off all sorts of confusion among senators. And McConnell apparently reversed himself yet again in a private meeting today, telling Republican senators that he personally still backs pairing border aid with Ukraine and telling reporters that Trump's opposition to the deal is not anything new. What also isn't new is that the bottom line is that Mitch McConnell may like Ukraine, but he loves power more, which means being obedient to Trump, who's been pressuring Republican senators to kill the deal in the hopes Trump will win, carry Republican Senate candidates with him and sweep Mitch back to majority leader. So, no, it's also not shocking that he's throwing Ukraine and the border crisis under the bus for Trump, since we all know it took him about 30 hot seconds to go from saying Trump provoked the mob on January 6th 
to whipping against convicting him in his Senate impeachment trial while saying this immediately after. Trump's actions preceded the riot were a disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. Never mind that more than a year later, it was revealed in a book that McConnell had said of Trump's behavior that day, quote, if this isn't impeachable, I don't know what is. McConnell is, as we all know, just one of many supposedly normie Republicans who know Trump well. They know he's dangerous and have told any number of people so, but have stayed on the sidelines when it matters. Folks like his former chief of staff, John Kelly, former secretary of state Rex Tillerson, or former defense secretary James Mattis, who have been mostly AWOL so far this election season. Joining me now, Stuart Stevens, political strategist and senior advisor to the Lincoln Project. Make it make sense, Stuart. These people know Trump is dangerous, but they want him to be president. You know, this is extraordinary. Um, And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we shouldn't ask ourselves again how 1930s Germany happened. Not that the same results are going to end. But this is people who are deliberately doing something they know is evil in the pursuit of power. And there's all sorts of rationalizations they come up with. Um, What Mitch McConnell says is exactly what the German aristocrats who made a deal with Hitler said. We've lost touch with the working class. We need someone like uh, Adolf Hitler or Donald Trump who can speak to these people and they will keep us in power. And we'll be able to control them. That's what they all thought. But now Mitch McConnell knows he can't control Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what line anyone expects him to cross on policy when he, as you pointed out, he instigated a riot that had people come into their workplace and tried to kill them, kill them. So once you forgive that and look the other way and accept that that's just part of the price of doing business with this guy, I I just don't know where else it goes. It's it's an extraordinary disgrace. It's a historic legacy item that they're dealing with here. This is how Mitch McConnell is gonna be remembered. If the Republican party becomes a party that sells out Ukraine, It'll be generational in its impact. And they're all out there saying Slava Ukrainian. Then he's like, yeah, but you know what? F them Ukrainians. If I, you know, if I need Trump back in But it's not just him, right? I mean, you've got, there are people who have said behind, let me just tell you a few, three of them, the three that I mentioned. James Mattis, in Bob Woodward's book, Rage, said the president has no moral compass. He's dangerous. He's unfit. John Kelly, he's an idiot. It's pointless to try to convince him of anything. He's gone off the rails. We're in crazy town. From a, of a 2018 interview, Rex Tillerson, I would have to say to him, Mr. President, I understand what you want to do, but you can't do it that way. It violates the law. None of these people has cut an ad, come out publicly. They won't. They're not all over television saying, please do not elect this guy. They're not backing Nikki Haley, who would give them all the rich people would get their money with her. She would do all the drilling. She'd do all the stuff they want. But she ain't him. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't understand it. I think part of the problem here is maybe the difficulty that we have with the unimaginable and that it's difficult to imagine. And I think that the people keep believing that there's going to be some reversion to normalcy and some standard that is going to uphold the Republican Party. If you look at all these donors behind Nikki Haley, they really want to sort of forget the Trump era. They don't want to deal with it. They want to go back to sort of a pre-Trump. And that world doesn't exist anymore. No, it does not. And you have to live live in the world that you're, you're, you're living in. Um, and we're sort of in this slow motion Munich appeasement moment. And 
I find it just extraordinary that the core of the Republican Party, if nothing else, was its opposition to the Soviet Union and uh, defined by Ronald Reagan standing in front of the Berlin Wall, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And now the heart of the pro-Putin, pro-Russia movement in America is in the Republican Party, conservative, most conservative element. It, it's just extraordinary. Um, yeah. And it's, it's a reason why, if you support democracy, there's really only one pro-democracy party in America now. It's the Democratic Party. This, yeah. this, it's that simple. Yeah. Nothing else really matters. And that's why people like myself that spent a lot of years working in the Republican Party, we are actively supporting President Biden and doing so enthusiastically um, and giving it everything we can. That's what we do at the Lincoln Project. I think it's pretty clear, uh, you know, I said I said on the show yesterday that the three choices, whether you love the choices you have or not, are pretty much autocracy, Trump, oligarchy, Nikki Haley, who's basically backed by just she's money, you know, big money people walking uh, and Biden. And, and let me play two people who are strongly opposed to Trump and say the same things you say, except the last part. They're not supporting Biden. Here they are. They are Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney. That is so cynical and and irresponsible um, and, um, you know, surprising, frankly. Um, we all know how dangerous the situation is at the border. The Republican leader to be saying, well, we, we're not going to take any action because Trump doesn't want us to. Um, you know, that that just, I think, confirms what everybody's frustrations are about about politics today and is just really, really cynical and sad that that's the position they're taking. I think the border is a very important issue for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling. They still sound like, as you said, they're talking about like the Bush era. Do they not have they not met Mitch McConnell? This is the same guy who said our top political priority in the next two years, as he said this in 2010, should be to deny President Obama a second term. They live in a party where the Republican National Committee is about to just declare they're they're weighing a resolution to, just, to declare Trump the winner, despite the fact that they're still a primary. What 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 nation? What, where do these people live? Well, what look, um, I know both these people pretty well. I've worked with them closely. Let's see how this, uh, as we say in Vermont, sugars out. I think that when Donald Trump does become the nominee and it's just a straight up choice, um, I, I don't think the problem is going to be what Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney are doing. I think they're going to do the yeah. right thing here. Um, so, I mean, just think, you know, Mitt came out in the spring of 16 and uh, denounced Trump. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that he was surprised that so few people followed him. <laughs> and he, voted, he was the first uh, senator ever in the history of the United States to vote to impeach a member of his own party. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think he goes to bed at night and he sleeps well. He's been threatened, as has Liz Cheney. They both have received serious physical threats and they've dealt with it. But uh, they're, they're examples of quiet courage. And I think they're going to end up doing the right thing here for America. And the question is, this is really it's not about Donald Trump. It's really about who we are as a country. And the president expressed that in a, a, a one of his most powerful speeches. Um, this is a moral test for the country. Yeah. And, I, you know, yeah. I think it, the path for Biden's reelection is looking clearer and clearer. You've had recent polls that show Biden's approval ratings in New Hampshire and uh, Pennsylvania are yeah. 38 yeah. percent. And he's winning by nine points. And I think you're going to see that more and more as the choice becomes more apparent. 
It's going to be a very interesting test for this country, whether or not people are willing to elect somebody who was 91 counts in as, a, as an accused criminal <laughs> and maybe gets convicted, whether they are good with that and will put that man back in the White House. To say nothing of the autocracy, Stuart Stevens, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks. And coming up, cheers. A new report provides a closer look at the post-roll realities that would be shocking if they weren't so easily predictable and preventable. More next. Every single day, we get a stream of reminders of the inhumanity of the Republican-backed reversal of Roe v. Wade. There are the stories about women being left to nearly die in parking lots before they will be treated for an abortion. Stories of little girls who are raped but denied abortion care in their home state. And then there are the stories of women who follow the new rules but are still denied an abortion. Those stories are ghastly enough. But yesterday, we got yet another barbaric reminder of how atrocious this new America is for women. According to research published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, 64,565 pregnancies have been caused by rape in the 14 states where abortion is banned. The 14 states are Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. That means that roughly 65,000 women have been forced to bring to term a child born from a brutal assault. Children, I should note, who, if they're poor, most of those states refuse to offer food assistance or access to Medicaid under Obamacare. You see, Republicans and their forced birth activists don't care about the victims of rape or incest or their children. Instead, they fantasize they'll just end rape. Rape is a crime. And Texas will work tirelessly to make sure that we eliminate all rapists from the streets of Texas by aggressively going out and uh, arresting them and prosecuting them and getting them off the streets. So goal number one in the state of Texas is to eliminate rape so that no woman, no person will be a victim of rape. As you can imagine, that's that's nearly impossible. On average, there are roughly 463,000 reported cases of rape and sexual assault each year. And according to this new data, Governor Abbott has clearly failed to eliminate the rapists because Texas saw an estimated 26,313 rape-related pregnancies during the 16 months after the state outlawed all abortions, with no exceptions for survivors of rape or incest. Joining me now is Dr. Samuel Dickman. He was one of the researchers who calculated the data. He's also the medical director of Planned Parenthood Montana and a plaintiff in several lawsuits challenging abortion restrictions in Montana. Dr. Dickman, thank you for being here. Uh, everything about this report was alarming. But one of the most alarming things was how you all got to the 64,000 number. Um, you started with this huge universe of cases. You use Bureau of Justice statistics data on criminal victimization and uniform crime reports from the FBI and looked at the vaginal rapes of women in 14 states aged 15 to 45. And you arrived at approximately 520,000 rapes. How did you get from that to the final number? Thank you, Joy. And I just want to acknowledge that this is an incredibly challenging topic to um, talk about. And uh, I really appreciate you taking it seriously. Um, we 
know that sexual assault is incredibly common. Like you said, half a million rapes of um, reproductive age women in the 14 states that have banned abortions. And of those, more than 60,000 pregnancies is what we estimate. Um, and we make those estimations using the best available data from the CDC and prior peer-reviewed research. And, you know, you have dealt with these cases yourself, uh, as the NPR piece uh, on this case, uh, on this on this study showed. When a woman comes in um, and they have been a victim, they've been victimized this way, and then they are told that they are pregnant, give me an example of some of the ways that they react. I mean, just imagine what it took for that woman to even make it into the clinic. Um, you know, she had to find, you know, make an appointment, um, perhaps uh, secretly from her abuser and um, disclose this information to a doctor that she just barely met. I mean, the the level of courage and bravery to even get that far is um, honestly inspiring. And, um, you know, I feel very lucky to be, be able to be an abortion provider. And I worked in Texas for several years as an abortion provider. And it's just so hard to imagine what survivors of rape and sexual assault um, go through uh, in order to get basic medical care. What do you make of uh, <clears throat> the laws in some of these forced birth states that also require a woman to produce a police report in order to even qualify? And then in some cases, it still isn't enough. Oh, it's it's never enough. In fact, the exceptions that some of these 14 states have are nothing more than rhetoric. They're not providing any meaningful abortion care because it's not just that they're essentially coerced into reporting the rape to law enforcement, which of course many choose not to do for completely understandable reasons. But then they would have to find an abortion provider willing to do an abortion in a state like you know Texas. That's uh, impossible, and even in a state like Idaho, which is you know next to me over here in Montana, um, there are no abortion providers in in Idaho, even though the state technically has an exception for rape. So the the rape exceptions are 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 completely meaningless when it comes to actually protecting survivors. What would happen if these abortion bans became a national law? I mean. Um, you know, it's something that I don't even want to think about. Um, but we know that many, many um, women and pregnant people are traveling from states with abortion bans to states that have abortion access. You know, I take care of patients like that all the time in my practice. Yeah. If they weren't able to do that, I mean, what you would see is, is uh, you know, even more of a catastrophe for, um, for women across this country. Indeed. Um, there'd be no free states left. Uh, Dr. Samuel Dickman, thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for spending some time with us this evening. Cheers. Joy, it's really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And still ahead, Biden deploys CIA Director William Burns to the Mideast in a fresh attempt to cement a deal on the release of Israeli hostages before Gaza is entirely wiped out. More next.
The Biden administration is making a f- new push to help negotiate a potential hostage deal. Sources tell NBC News that CIA Director Bill Burns is set to meet with Qatar's prime minister and Israel's Mossad director this weekend to try to secure the release of the more than 100 hostages still being held in Gaza, including as many as six Americans. It comes amid growing tensions between Qatar and Israel after leaked comments surfaced of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu allegedly disparaging Qatar's role as a mediator with Hamas. A Qatari official wrote on X that they were appalled by the alleged remarks, adding that if they were found to be true, Netanyahu would only be obstructing and undermining the mediation process for reasons that appear to serve his political career. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., there's been growing outrage over that video that we showed you yesterday of a man in Gaza being shot and killed while he and others were walking down the street of a designated safe zone wearing a waving a white flag. During a press briefing yesterday, reporters grilled the State Department deputy spokesman about the incident. I wonder what your response to that is and whether you think from watching that video, whether that potentially represents a war crime. Um, I have seen those, the, that footage, um, but uh, I uh, am not going to uh, comment on the specifics around that, given I'm not aware of the full circumstances on the ground. Given that you, you support, broadly support, IDF operations in the <laughs> Gaza Strip, would you support a Israeli investigation of what happened in that video? That given, is for... Given that they're waving a white flag and that, they represented no threat. That, that is for uh, the IDF to, to undertake and determine, uh, based on the circumstances of that uh, situation. And as the death toll in Gaza surpasses 25,700, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, tomorrow judges at the International Court of Justice will respond to South Africa's request for an interim ruling on its genocide case against Israel. The court will not rule on the core question of whether Israel is committing genocide. That verdict could take years, but it will rule on the emergency measures requested by South Africa to restrain Israel's military operation in Gaza. We'll be keeping a close eye on that story and bringing you more tomorrow. And that is tonight's readout. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.